Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, and Charlie is right, we are starting a new series. Thank you. But before we do, I want to underline an, an announcement that Chaz had made just to reemphasize it. We're starting our partnership class next week at 8.30 up here. So if you're interested in partnership, what that means, who we are as a church, why our values are shaped the way that they are, why we're named the way that we are, our history, where we're going, that's a great class um, to come to. It's one of my favorites. It's three weeks long. It's up here from 8.30 to 9.30. So if you want to be a part of that, there's two ways in which you could jump into that class. One is you can go through our app, the PCO app, if you already have that from checking your kids in or from giving or anything like that. Another is, and I don't know if we, if we could put this up on the screen, our text line. You can just text the word class to our text line. There it is. 865-484-6086. Just type the word class and we will get in touch with you. And this helps us know how much content to generate for you um, coming next week. But yeah, we, we are starting a new series today, one that we really need. Uh, just as a reminder, when we preach things from the stage, it's, it's not random at all. We are always setting this kind of thing up long ago. We've been working on this for months. And the reason we prepare months in advance is because we're looking ahead to maybe some of the challenges that are coming. We're trying to pay attention as leaders, as elders, to some of the challenges that we currently have. And so we build with some intention when we put our series together, our sermons. We're already looking at next year. We're already planning and talking and discussing what 2024 will look like. I'm actually really excited about the direction that the Lord is pulling us in. I think we have a lot of work to do. As a church in this city, I think it's going to be an adventure. I'm excited. I'm all in. So is our leadership team. But today we're going to begin a 12-week series called Creed, Unfuzzy Beliefs in a Fuzzy World. Creed, not to be confused with the 90s band. That's the very first thing that comes to my mind whenever I even hear the word creed. And if you even know what I'm talking about, you will be happy to know that they are reunited last month. I saw this a couple weeks ago. Not to cut a new album, but to do a cruise, right? Okay, there's 500 cabins left if you want to get yourself a seat and reminisce for a cruise and maybe get a stomach bug. Um, creed will make that happen for you. <laughs> no, we're going to walk through the Apostles' Creed, which is about 2,000 years old. It's a long time that this has been spoken and recited all over the globe in just about every imaginable culture. It's, it's powerful. Creeds, in general, are powerful. But this one's powerful and it's helpful because it distills and it synthesizes really the top shelf teachings of the Bible for you and for me. They summarize important doctrine. The things that are most valuable. Now, they themselves do not hold authority. They reflect what the Bible says. Okay, and it's important that we know that. So we're not preaching a creed. We're going to preach the Bible. They're a reflection of what the Bible says. Creeds don't lead Scripture. They follow Scripture. So we're going to let it guide us. But the Bible is going to lead us. It's going to help us see Jesus clearly. It's going to help us today see God the Father more clearly, our role in all of this much more clearly. So locally here at Legacy, this creed in particular is probably one of the best backbones to what we believe as a church. Our doctrinal beliefs as a church, they do get more nuanced, maybe more granular in some specific directions. But this one is probably the shortest and most complete statements of faith that we could possibly use. So it's important for that. 
But we're choosing this creed also for some key reasons. I just want to go over that just for a moment so that you know why we are unpacking this, as Charlie said, over the next several weeks. One is that we need alignment, right? Alignment. We can become very, I guess, asymmetrical as a people. Our belief system isn't proportionally set in good directions. We, we're hyper-focused in one area and we maybe neglect another area. And so we're not just out of sync individually. That kind of makes us out of sync with the person next to us. I mean, if you've ever had a wheel that's out of alignment on your car, isn't that exciting how it just keeps pulling you out of the center? There's always this veer, this drift. You kind of have to fight it. Well, we can be like that sometimes. We hit a pothole and we start veering and we're really out of alignment driving crooked. I remember when I was 16, I hit a pothole really hard with my car. It was a 1991 Ford Escort, so it didn't need a whole lot of help to drive crooked. But I hit this pothole, it was full of water, it was going a little too fast, and I noticed for the rest of the day, gosh, it's kind of veering to the left. So this is how a 16-year-old boy thinks. I thought, if I go back and hit the same pothole at the same speed with my other wheel, it will equal out, right? So I did. I came back and I aimed perfectly. I nailed it dead on, going 50 whatever miles an hour. Hit that pothole. The, cu- the, the hubcap, because it didn't have real wheels, the hubcap flies over the car. I never found it again. And that car never drove straight ever again for the rest of its life. <laughs> I didn't know much about alignment. Here's what I do know. Bad alignment is most noticeable at high speeds. At high speeds. Listen, as you grow as a Christian, you grow in your understanding, your scope, and your depth, we grow as a church in our scope and in our depth as a people. When you grow, we grow. And when we grow, we get faster. We're already a little bit faster than we were last year, faster than we were five years ago, much faster than we were 10 years ago. In seven years, we're going to be a lot faster at things like planting, training, spending money. We're going to be faster. Everything paces up. We have to make sure that we are aligned with the Bible and with each other in order just to stay healthy, to not veer, to move in a good direction. And if we major in something that's minor in the Bible or we minor in something that's major in the Bible, we become asymmetrical. We'll discover over time we're out of alignment. And you've seen this in people, haven't you? Oh yeah, You've seen this probably in churches. They take something of secondary importance tertiary importance and they push it up to the top shelf and they make it the most important thing in the world. All they could talk about is the Sabbath. All they could talk about is spiritual gifts or the return of Jesus. They, they, it's politics. It's this. It's that. It's how we raise our kids. But it, it just feels like they're veering. They're out of sync. All of those things are valuable. But they are not what Paul would call of primary importance. Okay. 1 Corinthians 15, he says this to the young church that was struggling with how it veered. It it hit some potholes. And he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he's talking about the Old Testament there. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says, first importance. There are items that are of first importance. If we take items from the third shelf and push it to the top, old earth, young earth, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, we can become unaligned with the Bible, unaligned with each other, unaligned with just the church in general. Creeds, however, have a way of reeling us all back into what is of first importance, keeping us straight and aligned. 
So we need alignment. That's one reason. Another one is we need clarity because we're just not always that clear as a people. With each other, with the world, we could become very hazy. Uh, people don't understand us. That's because we don't even understand really what we believe or why we believe it. There was a study done two years ago by Arizona Christian University, and they did this national survey discovering that just under 180 million people in this country consider themselves a Christian. Out of that 180 million, 5% have what they would consider a biblical worldview. 5%. That's not very many. That means 95% hear the Bible, they read the Bible, but it doesn't carry over into things like how they see their money or personhood or sex or marriage or you fill in the blank. There, there's cracks in the frame that frames up their worldview. And last year, which is a year after that study, Gallup found that out of the 40% of those who identify as Christians, only four, or out of everyone who does, so the whole 180, 40% say that they hold the entire Bible as the actual word of God. 40%. 60%, not so much. 60%, they're probably just fine ripping a few pages out, overlooking some things, making excuses for some of it. Here's some of the things that we can draw from studies like this. There are a lot of people sitting in church services today or watching at home today, or listening to this as they're on a road trip today. There are a lot of people who do not know what they believe, why they believe it. It's not infiltrating how they see the world, and they don't even know if they believe the book that it's coming from. A lot. There's a lack of clarity. There's a lack of conviction, even within God's church. Creeds, however, collect and summarize the treasures of Christianity for you and for me, in such a way that every man, woman, and child could clearly state what Paul calls of first importance, the things that are vitally important. You know, you might not know what you believe about when Jesus comes back. You, you might not be able to teach a class on baptism, sprinkling versus full immersion. You, you might not know that, but it is important for you and me to know clear and be able to state clearly the primary matters of Christianity. And I think the third big reason is we need fluency that's consistent with the past. Uh, so we'll just call it a consistent fluency. We have so much to say to a lost world as missionaries. And if you're in Christ, you are a missionary. We're a church full of missionaries, right? We say it all the time. But creeds build fluency. What is the gospel? Who is Jesus? Why is Jesus? What happens when we die? What happens to our bodies when we die? Who judges us? The Father? The Son? Why? When's the end? These are key questions that we have to be fluent in. Creeds give us a vocabulary that we could use to traffic in our everyday moments. I mean, statistically, there is a hunger and millennials, Generation Z and Generation Alpha for a stability and a consistency that comes from the past. I first discovered this maybe 17-ish years ago. I read about it in a book that was kind of cutting edge at the time. And it was hard for me to understand because I'm Generation X, right? I'm a Gen Xer. So Gen X in the younger portion, the younger crust of the baby boomer generation, it was always a quest to get away from what is traditional, to get away from what is old and what felt crusty and historic. You didn't want to anchor yourself to that. We were all looking for the contemporary service, not the traditional service, right? Well, as it turned out, there was a pivot somewhere in the early millennial generation where there was this hunger for liturgy, 
that was ancient, for creeds that were ancient, for something that was stable, something that wasn't moving. I couldn't figure that out. I thought, why would anyone want to do that? Why would you give up the electric guitar and the fog for the organ? Why would you do that? I want a pastor that wears a Hawaiian shirt with sandals and can get it done in 20 minutes. I don't want to listen to a guy in a suit. I couldn't understand it, but it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, with all the shifting sands today where universities deny biology, politicians will straight up deny justice, the media will set out to reprogram our kids, and everything is moving so fast we can't keep up, creeds do us a solid favor by anchoring us in a historical doxology that stretches all the way back to ancient days, all the way back. I mean, you just said it. When you were with Charlie up here and reciting this creed, you were joining the voices that stretched over two millennia. Like a drop of water that fell into a stream that was big, had already been moving, and has got some movement left to it. That's what the creed does for us. So important for you and me, where truth is now variable, it's personal. It's helpful to have a center point that stands the test of time. Consistent fluency is not just good for you. It's not just good for the person next to you. It's good for this city. It's good for the future. And so I want to jump in and just start. I don't have a lot of time left, but I have time to get started on the very first line of this. And she's right. We're going to kind of parse it out and stretch it out over some time. And I want to do a really good job of unpacking it the best we can to be as helpful as we can for you. But the first line is, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. God, the creator of every atomic particle, is also your father. Get your mind around that. That is mind-bending to me, and it's very fascinating to me, I'll have to confess, that the gospel makes us family, capital F, family, with the God of time and space. And not just that we're in proximity to him, but he is actually our father. I, I have a hard time with it, and I probably wouldn't believe it if the Bible didn't tell us so clearly. Galatians 4, Paul talks to another young church, and he says, and because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, which is an intimate way of, of, of referring to God. It's an intimate way of stretching out and touching God. Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And we're going to talk about that. But then he tells the church of Rome something very similar. You want to know why? Because they needed to hear it. He said some things multiple times to multiple people because people struggle with this. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we're going to talk about what that means in a moment. First John, John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God? Children of God? I mean, who is, who is man that God is even mindful of him? But how beautiful is God that we would even be called children of him? He is our father. God is our father. I tell you what, you remove that Jenga block from the whole little bit of a tower, the whole thing comes apart. Christianity cannot make sense. The gospel is not good news at all. The whole thing falls. Now, culture would love to depict God in various ways. Rarely kind father. We don't get that depiction very much. We usually get the Old Testament flavor of father. He's got a temper tantrum, a hair, a hair trigger, a temper. He's melancholy, kind of unimpressed with us. 
real busy, too busy to talk to you. But listen, not only is our Father good, we actually see the thermodynamics of how we relate to a God who is so majestic and yet intimate, who is also Abba. We see it through Christ. Now, what's interesting is not only is God the Father, God is also the Son. And some of you, this might be strange for you. It might be hard to understand how the Trinity works. Let me just be honest. It's a mystery. I'm not about to explain to you exactly how the Trinity works, but I will tell you what it is, okay? God is our Father. God is also the Son. How God reveals himself in Trinitarian form is one of the deeper mysteries of the whole Bible. And it's because we can't use a, a, a ruler or a caliper to, to measure the distance between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit because there's no space in between them. They are separate and they are the same. They are three and they are one. In fact, what sets them different what sets them apart from each other is not their quality of being, but it's actually their relationship with each other, their function within each other. The Father has a will to accomplish, a divine plan like an architect. The Son comes into this world to execute that plan, to accomplish the plan of redemption. And there's this beautiful cooperation we see all through the New Testament of how they work together, Father and Son. And there's even a beautiful submission in all of this. As God has a plan as the Father, he sends the Son to carry out the plan of redemption. And here, in all of this, the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. But there's no injury caused to the Son. Not at all. Jesus doesn't feel demeaned in this submission. He doesn't feel oppressed. He doesn't feel diminished. It was a joy for him. They are both fully God. And when Jesus spoke, he would often clear this relationship with his father up. We see it mostly in John. He says at one point, he who has seen me has seen the father. Hey, if you want to know what God the father looks like, just take a good look. Right? And then he also says, I and the father are one. And as mysterious as all of that is, admittedly it's mysterious, it actually gets more amazing. Because we share sonship with Jesus. He is a son, and we share it with him. Matthew 6, 9, this is why we hear Jesus say, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, our Father. He'll refer later on, after he is resurrected, he will tell Mary, go and get my brothers. We share a sonship with Jesus. The gospel is beautiful because it's a story of adoption. We're brought into his family tree. And Jesus wants to share his relationship with the Father with you. He enjoys the Father so much. He wants to share that relationship with you and with me. That's why he went to the cross. It glorifies God to do this. And it benefits you. And although the Son existed eternally, I mean, that's important to keep in mind. And I'm not getting into the deep weeds of the person of Jesus. That's for another week. But it is important to know his timeline does not start at the manger, right? He was not created. Jesus was not created in a manger. He eternally existed in, in perfect communion with the Trinity, with the Spirit, and with God the Father, all at the same time. But he did come, and he made himself nothing. He was found in the appearance of man, humbling himself, even all the way to the cross. So what is the Father doing today? He's presiding, watching. He's outside of time, but he's presiding over creation, and the Son is at his right hand advocating for his people. You, for me, 
we are, in a sense, siblings of Jesus. Co-heirs, the Bible would call us. Jesus is the begotten son. We are the adopted children. Same family. Same family. Jesus is the happy brother to us. God the Father is happy to father us. We are happily brought into this divine family, this divine business. Now, here's the thing. We have this father who is otherworldly. We've established that in a very short amount of time, right? Unapproachable. He is majestic, eternal creator. He has hand-fashioned every single molecule that has ever existed, and he has been been thoughtful for and created for every moment that has ever been experienced. That's how big he is, and yet that's not his greatest glory. His greatest glory is not that he is unobtainable and majestic. It's that although he needs nothing from you and me, he comes close to us as father. That's glorious. A father who laughs with us. A father who loves us, who delights in us. Even the smallest parts of our lives. He smiles over us. It is hard to compute how one can be so intimate and grandiose at the same time. I mean, friend, listen, if you have a fear of God, you're right to have that what the Bible would call a holy dread, uh, an awe for his power and his size, if, if, you, if you have that, that's right. But it is also right to, to be joyful and to confidently cling to his leg like, like, a, like a child does a, a dad in the middle of a thunderstorm. It's, oh, that, that's, and one doesn't glorify God more than the other. The same God who scolded the darkness and creates the Milky Way is just like the father who cannot wait to play with his kids, who wants to hear about the minutia of your day, who doesn't want you to leave any details out. He delights in you. He loves to hear you laugh. He hates your pain. He's heavily invested in all the rhythms of your life. Here's why we can't compute that. This is why this is all a struggle for you and me, because not all of us had perfect fathers. Even those of us who have good dads, and I did. Even those of us who had good dads experienced their mistakes. We were witnesses to their bad moments. We watched them carry baggage from how they were fathered. Who carried baggage from how they were fathered? All the way back to Adam. They're imperfect. Even if they love Jesus, love their kids, they still have issues because they're imperfect. And therefore, our view of God is going to carry that forward. If I was to walk up to some of you and we had an honest moment where you felt vulnerable and to say, hey, tell me about your relationship with your father on earth, your, your earthly father, I think probably a good chunk of you would say, that's complicated. I mean, how much time do you have, Right? Some of you would say, I don't want to talk about it. You don't have any thoughts. You don't even want to think about your father. For some, your, your dad was absent or abusive. I don't know. Relationships with dad are nuanced. And we all grew up asking questions about how do we really relate to our dad? Is dad someone I'm supposed to fear and respect and create some distance and buffer? Or is he someone that I'm supposed to play with and just kind of interrupt in the middle of his day? How do I relate to this Dad, most people just see their father as someone not to be disturbed because their work is so very important. And their lives really aren't. Tim Keller spoke to this once when he says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. And we have that kind of access. I don't always feel like it, though. I don't know about you. 
I, I know I have this access to the Father. I know it because the Bible tells me. I know that I have it. I, I know that it's there for me. I admit it. It's true, but I don't always believe it, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I don't always walk it out. And here's how I know that it's evidenced in a few things. It's evidenced in a lack of thanksgiving. If you don't thank the Lord, what it does, it's a declaration of self-sufficiency, right? That's, that's what it is. If I'm not thankful, it's because I really don't think that God is a father who provides. I had to self-provide. I had to take care of myself. If I'm going to thank anyone, it's going to be me. So whenever there's a lack of thanksgiving, you might slip towards this pole. What about a, a lack of prayer? It's the same thing. It's a lack of prayer. Some of you, you struggle with prayer, and it's not because you don't have time. It's not because you have ADHD. The, the, some of the reasons that we struggle with prayer is because we don't think it's effective. He's not a God who cares. We're alone. We might be in a family, but he's off working. I can do this myself. That's effectively why we have prayerless lives a lot of times. Or, or maybe it's why we have a lack of perspective when it comes to discipline. We're experiencing a hard discipline in our life. And because we can't see our Father as good and kind, we don't know how to interpret what's in our lap. We don't know how to deal with it. Man, we can so easily be beloved children that just live like orphans, in other words. And if that's you, friend, listen, you're not a victim of anything. That's a sin. That's something that we turn from. And this is why it's a sin. Because at its key kernel center it's unbelief. It's us reading the Bible of how good God is as a father, how good he has been, how much he provides, how much he loves, what he has sacrificed for us, how much he's thought for us, even from the beginning of time. And it's us looking at that, taking it all in and saying, you're a liar. I am alone. I'm not in a family. I'm not thought for. I'm all alone. It's unbelief. And it pushes so many sins right to the surface. Listen, your, your joy and your fruitfulness as a disciple, it's going to hinge on how you interact with God as a father, as a father. A misshapen view of the father builds a misshapen child. God is majestic and it's strikingly clear he is also Abba. He's also dear. What comes into your mind, we've said this so many times from the stage, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's from C.S. Lewis, and I, I don't think it could be any more true than it is true in a moment like this. That's why it's important for us to reframe how we see God as Father. And there's one beautiful picture, and it's at the end of a story. And We're not going to go through the whole story. We're, I just want you to see the end of it. And it's a son who's coming home. He was rebellious, thought his dad oppressive, caught himself alone, unfamilied, uncared for. He comes home. It says, and he arose, this is in Luke 15, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, or said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I would love a chapter two to this story. I don't know about you. But I have a feeling we would have a really good picture of what a really good father looks like. Right? 
Listen, the most important thing some of you, you need to hear today is that God, your Father, forgives you, rejoices over you whenever you turn to him, and is very happy to celebrate over you. Very happy. If you feel like you've lost your right to be in the family because of something you've done, I've got really good news for you. You never earned it to begin with. <laughs> you, you, you can't lose something that you did not earn. You were adopted. The idea of adoption is you will not be unadopted. Christ was the good son. He was the good son who traded his righteous life for ours, and now we will never be unadopted. We will never be unfamilied. We will never be uncared for. We will never be alone because of what Christ has done. And if you feel like God as a father is distant and uninvested, this is where we reframe that that idea of looking at God correctly. This is what we realign. This is why we talked about that a little bit earlier. This is why the Apostles' Creed begins with this. It's probably one of the biggest pillars of the whole thing. If there was ever a place for us to be clear, symmetrical, aligned, it's here. And I'll add, not only does a misshapen view of God build a misshapen child, a misshapen view of the Father builds a misshapen missionary. We don't even know how to be on God's mission properly. I mean, our world, Knoxville, our metro area, it needs a view of God as majestic yet intimate as a father. Unapproachable light and yet approachable daddy at the same time. Has to get that. We have to, we have to show a picture of God the Father that says, I'm here. You're not alone. There is a family. There's room at the table. You are cared for. That's that's what the world needs to see. You know, there is, this, there is this song that went viral in the last two weeks. If you're up on the news, you've probably already heard it. you probably already watched the video a few times. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I, I don't know who said this. It might have been Spurgeon. It's probably Spurgeon where he said every good missionary has the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And the idea is, is that when we read the news, we let our biblical worldview speak into it. So we're not just drinking from the faucet of what's going on in the world, but we're actually dragging it through the filter of what God has said. And it is, it's a valuable way of interpreting the news. And so I was able to do that this week because there's this guy, he's in uh, Virginia, Oliver Anthony. He's a country guy, not a country guy. You won't catch me listening to it very much, but this song was powerful. Rich Men North of Richmond is the name of it. You could look at it on your own if you want. There are some cuss words in it. You've been warned, don't email me, okay? And, and here's the thing. I don't care what your political affiliation is, if you're red or if you're blue. Put that aside for a moment. This guy was singing out of pain. That's why it went viral. 24 million views in a week from a no-name that you've never heard of. He was singing out of pain. Pain. That's the first thing I picked up in that. But that doesn't make something go viral. What makes it go viral? Everybody else that was listening to it was also in pain. They resonated with it. When something sparks like that and takes off, you get a little glimpse of America. You get a little glimpse of Knoxville. You get a little glimpse of your neighbor. There was pain in that. Your neighbor feels alone, uncared for. Your neighbor does. Not welcome. That was a big piece of that music video. It was a big piece of that song. This guy was really hurting because of how the government was reacting to him. The, he'd, he'd been in this dark, horrible place. But you could tell he felt alone, uncared for. 
victimized, marginalized. Man, that's the people walking all up and down the streets today. It's exactly how they feel. But God is their father. That's the key, friends, to seeing the gospel as a good story where Jesus is his son, our co-heir, our brother in a sense. God is a good dad who provides good things. The gospel is a good story. It's part of these good things. And the gospel is a story of him coming to build a bigger family with you and me. And friends, if we can't import that truth, we're never going to export it. We'll just be misshapen missionaries. So for your sake, for your joy, certainly. But also for God's mission. Ask God to change your view of him. He runs to you. He gets the fattened calf. He runs. He throws a party. We are beloved. And listen, I know there are people that are watching or are here, and you're not sure where you fall into this. You're just not sure. You've had moments where you felt like maybe I am a Christian, and moments where you're just probably not. And maybe somewhere in the middle on an average day. He said something when he was speaking to the Galatian church, Paul did. He said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? His spirit bearing witness with our spirit. John says this in John 15. Christ says, but when the helper comes, that's the spirit, which, and by the way, the Holy Spirit, and we'll get into this in several weeks whenever we hit the Holy Spirit as part of the creed, the Holy Spirit is every bit as much God as God the Father is. Right? He's not one-third God because he is, we don't talk about him as much. He is every bit as much, every inch as much God as Christ and the Father is. But when the helper comes, he says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit has one role as well. Remember we said they don't differ in quality of being. They differ in relationship and function. And the Holy Spirit's function is to point to Christ, to point to the centerpiece of the gospel story. When it says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, this is experiential assurance that you are a, that you are a Christian. Experiential assurance. This is not what it is. It's not a voice in your ear saying, hey, you're a Christian. I don't know if you know that. But today's a good day for you, friend. You're a Christian. It's not, you're not hearing a voice assuring you that you're a Christian. It is this hatred of sin and this love for God that comes. That's what it is. It's not a voice. It's a change of heart. He puts it in our heart to kill sin in our lives. And a hatred for sin develops over time. Listen, I don't know what happened to you at youth camp when you were nine. I don't know what book you read where you had a, a spark, a feeling, a feel. I don't know what's going on in your life. But if you don't hate sin and you don't love God, then the Spirit of God is not bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. It's important for you to know that. Because the Spirit points to Jesus, leads us to hate our sin, and leads us to love God with every fiber of our being. Right? And if that's you and you do want to submit your life to the Lord, I need you to find me today. Find me. Luke, help me. I don't know. I'm somewhere in between. I'm in that fog between, you know, I'm, I'm dead certain I'm, I'm with Christ and then there's some days I'm pretty certain I'm not. And I just don't know. I, I don't even know if I hate all of my sin. Maybe I hate some of it. I don't hate all of it. I, if that's you, I want you to come and talk to me today before you leave. Sure, it'll be awkward. Just come up and get through it. I won't be awkward. 
just say, I need to talk to you about this. I'd love to do that and pray with you.